Chapter Fifty Seven of Souls for Sale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Souls for Sale by Rupert Hughes. Chapter Fifty Seven. No one had talked hard times longer or louder than Bermond. He had been mocked at, hated, accused of greed when he cut salaries ruthlessly, refused to renew contracts, slowed up production. Artists said it was a cheap excuse for grabbing more profits. Having heard him croak of disaster so long, Mem assumed that his studio would be one of the first to crash. Her contract would be canceled or rendered worthless, or its provisions interrupted by a long vacation. Bermond sent for her, and she went prepared for the guillotine. He said, I like you, Miss Steddon. You've worked hard. You've made no trouble. You've taken good care of yourself, and in every picture you're a little better than before. I find that the exhibitors are wiring in. Give us more Steddon stuff. Our patrons, as they go out, stop to say how much they like Steddon. Why don't you star her? What the exhibitors say goes, as far as it can. I don't want to fight the public, though I try to give them better things all the time. We can't star you now. All our stars are going out. We can't put any more money in pictures till we sell what we've got on the shelves. But I believe in you. I want people to know you. And when the good times come again, you must be ready for them. So I'll go on paying your salary and send you out on a tour of personal appearances. Your last picture looks like a knockout. I'm going to take down Clive Cleland's name and feature yours alone. I want you to go east, to New York and Boston, Philly, Chai, all the big cities, and let the people see you when they see the picture. We'll pay your traveling expenses, give you a drawing room. That means we have to buy two tickets anyway, so your mother can go along as our guest. We'll give you a big publicity and a nice time in every city. What do you say? Of course, Mem cried, and it's ever so kind of you. This day's Bermond, who was not used to gratitude, he gasped. That's nice. All right. Go home and pack. She hastened home, and her heart went clickety-clickety with the lilting thrill of her first railroad voyage that had taken her from the Midwest to the Southwest. Now she was to triumph back across the Midwest and on and on to the Northeast, the Southeast, the two borders, the two coasts, and all the towns between. Remember, the Cinemite was going forth like Peter the Ermite to summon people to her banner of rescue, of sympathy, of ardor. Her mother was as joyous as she. The crusade was a new youth to her. It brought belatedly all the treasures of experience she had given up hoping for. The best she had ever expected was an occasional change of village to move as the evicted wife of a poor preacher from one parsonage whose dullness she had grown used to to a new boredom. Now she would travel like a dowager empress, from capital to capital, as the mother, the author of a famous screen queen. The royal progress was to begin with a transcontinental leap to New York to assist at the opening of the picture on Broadway. On Broadway! To the actor what, in heaven, is to the saint, in Rome to the priest, in Washington to the politician, in Gaul to the athlete. The abandoned suitors of Mem made a sorry squad at the Santa Fe station. They stared at her with humiliated devotion. Bermond sent a bushel of flowers and fruit to her drawing room. He saw to it that there were reporters to give her a good send-off. 
She left Los Angeles another woman from the lorn, lone thing that had crept into the terrifying city as so many sick lungers, faint harders, wounded war victims had crept into it and found it a restoring fountain of health and hope and ambition. She waved goodbye with a homesick sorrow in her eyes. Her consolation was her last shout. I'll come back. I'll come back. She had a little of the feeling Eve must have had as she made her last walk down the quickset paths of Eden toward the gate that would not open again. The train stole out of Eden like the serpent that wheedled Eve into the outer world. It glided through opulent Pasadena and Redlands and San Bernardino, a wilderness of olives, palms, and dangling apples of gold in oceans of orange trees. By and by came Cajun Pass, where the train began to clamber over the mountain walls that were the gate of this paradise. Up the deep ravine, known as Murder Canyon, when this land was unattainable until a pathway of human and animal bones had been laid down. Winter was waiting on the other side. There was winter here, too, of a sort, but it was the pretty winter of Southern California. The landscape was mooted to wistfulness. White trees were all aflutter, with gilded leaves as if butterfly swarms were clinging there, wind-blown. Soon the orange and fig trees no longer enriched the scene. Junipers and cactus, versatile in ugliness, manzanita and joshua trees were the emblems of nature's poverty. Yet there was something dear to Mem in the very soil. She could have kissed the ground goodbye as Ulysses flung himself down and pressed his lips on the good earth of Ithaca. The snow-sugared crests of the Cucamongas and old Baldy's bleak majesty were stupendously beautiful, but they seemed to be only monstrous enlargements of the tiny mountains that ants and beetles climbed. As the train lumbered up the steep, the earth passed before Mem's eyes, slowly, slowly. She found the ground more absorbing than the peaks or the sky. She stared inwardly into herself and the common people that she sprang from and spoke to. She found them the same as the giants, not so big in size but infinitely bigger in number. The Sierras and the foothills were only vast totals of minute mountains. She found the world wrinkles of the canyons, the huge slabs of rock patched with rags of green, repeated in the tiny scratches that raindrops had made in lumps of dirt. The wind of the passing train sent avalanches of pebbly dirt rolling through forests of petty weeds. Small lizards darted, yet were not so fast as the train that kept on its way out of paradise, winding like a gorged python. On some of the twists of track she could see its double head and the smoke it breathed. The mountains appeared to rise with the train, mocking it as human effort is always mocked, since its every climb discloses new heights. Every horizon conquered points with satiric laughter to farther horizons offered for a prize. Meek and unimportant as the little pebbles were on the slopes of the mountains, the peaks had also their inequalities, and looked to be forever snubbing one another. A tunnel killed the picture like a broken film. Instantly, Mem imagined Tom Holby at her side, snatching at a kiss. He would have been caught in the theft, for the mountains snapped back into view, only to be blacked out again. There would have been time for a long, long kiss, for many kisses in this rich gloom. Once more she found Tom Holby wooing her best in his absence. She wondered if she were not a fool to leave him. He had told her that he had saved money enough to live a long while without working, to travel abroad with her, to give her a gorgeous home. 
but she had thought of her ambition and followed it. She reviled herself for her automatic discontent. When she saw the monotony of home, as it held most women captive, she was glad she was a free rover in art. When she was free and roving, she envied them their luxury of repose. Now she was by herself. Her mother was nice, but mothers and fathers cannot count in that realm of the heart. Finally, the breathless train paused at the top of its climb. She was stung with an impulse to step down and take the first train back. Here she was at Summit, with a capital S, yet there was nothing much to see, a red frame station building with dull green doors and windows, a chicken yard, a red water tank on stilts, a baggage truck, a row of one-room houses crowded together for company, in spite of the too abundant space. Probably the summit of success would be about the same. The fun and the glory were in the scramble up, but it seemed lonely and uncomfortable at best to work so hard for such a cold reward, and she had left orange groves and love and the rich shade of obscurity. Then the train was on its way again, the helper engine withdrawn aside, panting with exertion. The train would coast down to the levels without help. You don't need help to get down. Only when you get down, you would find desert instead of a bower. The other side of the mountains, after all, the effort of getting across, would be like crawling back of a tapestry to study the seamy side, the knots and the patternless waste. Still, her youthful eagerness always served as an antidote for her discontent. The desert had its charms. The dead platitudinous levels made easier going. Platitudes were labor-saving, and you went faster and safer over them. And you can see farther on the level. Up high, the mountains get in one another's way, as do jealous artists and contradictory creeds. The next morning found the desert still running by, the ground was as brown and red and shaggy as the hide of an ancient squaw. There were scabs of snow in the wrinkles, in the air an annoyance of stingy little snowflakes. The mountains here along were cruel and snarling. They would not understand the yearning for warmth because they could not. They were cold as the Sierras of critics that Mem must try to conquer. But she could feel sorry for them also. It could not be much fun to be cold and bleak and critical. The cattle sprinkled about the region were working hard for sparse fodder. Life was like that. In the warm, sweet summer, food and drink were easy to get and luscious. Waking was a dream and sleeping a beatitude. Love was balm in the air. In the winter, though, food and drink were scant and harsh. Waking was misery and sleep a shivering. Love hardly more than two waifs shivering together to keep warm. At one station, Indian girls ran along the track, offering gaudy little earthenware baskets and bright beadwork they had made to an express train that would not stop long enough even for such passengers as would take the trouble to buy. The girls wore striped Navajo shawls that were not warm enough. Their other clothes were inappropriate, somehow, civilized garb that took away picturesqueness and conferred ugliness instead of comfort, wrinkled black stockings, high shoes, pink plaid dresses, the poor things that had been Indian princesses, a large word for their true estate, yet it was a come-down from the primeval cliff caves to the trackside where they offered beads for pennies to the pale faces who had once swapped beads for empires. Mem saw a resemblance to herself in one copper-colored maid who held up her handiwork. She herself, each of her fellow creatures, white, brown, red, or black, 
was but a poor ignorant savage offering some crude ware to busy strangers drawn past in an express train it was self-consideration as much as sympathy that made her hurry to the platform and open the vestibule door she wanted to buy that girl's merchandise so that people would buy her own soul when she thrust it at them but a long dark train drew into the station drove the indian girl back and cut off all communication it reminded mem of a long hostile criticism one of those lumbering reviews that ran over her own heart now and then because her body was in the way and because the train came from the opposite direction before the westbound train drew out her own moved on and she never saw the indian girl again the next thing she saw on that side was a saw blade of mountains gashing the blue sky with its jagged teeth the world was an almighty big place there was so much desert and then so much farmland so many large cities one night they came to kansas city where the train waited an hour this had been the first big city mem had ever seen on this platform she had met tom holby and robina teal never dreaming that she would play such havoc in his cosmic heart on this platform she had bought her first moving picture magazines and her soul had been rocked by her first knowledge of the wild things women were making of themselves and now when she and her mother went up to the vast waiting room and she bought many moving picture magazines there was only one of them that omitted a picture of her own and that magazine promised for the next month an article about her as the most promising star of the morrow the morrow and the next month what would they do to her what would she do the world next month the immediate moral found her on the train again and staring into the dark in a blissful forward-looking nightmare the dark was like the inside of her eyelids when they closed a mystic sky of purple nebula widening circles of flame crawling rainbows infinitesimal comets rushing through the interstellar deeps of her eyelids she had forced her mother to accept the full space of the bed made up on the two seats she chose the narrow couch and maidenly solitude she slept ill that night or rather she lay awake well her mind was an eager loom streaming with bright threads that flowed into tapestries of heroic scope she was a personage of importance a genius with the future an artist of a new art the youngest and the best of the arts the young pantagruel born about the year that she was born it had already best ridden the narrow world like a colossus and had made the universal language a fact she was speaking this long-sought esperanto for everybody to understand she had already seen clippings from london newspapers referring to her with praise she had seen in a south american magazine a picture of herself as senorita remembra steddon she had seen a full-page picture of herself in a french magazine with the caption referring to her as un thé etre c'est la plus belle de la con her art was good to her and she must be good to it it demanded a kind of celibacy as some religions did perfection in celibacy was not often attained in either field and the temptations to lawful wedlock and stodgy domesticity were as fierce and burning as to lawless whim but here she was on her way to glory yet she tossed in loneliness a pauper of love well she was fulfilling the newly discovered destiny of her sex during the night the train crossed the meridian that would have led her to her old home in calverley and her father 
He had advanced a little, but not much, from the most ancient patriarchal ways. From the time when a father affianced his daughter, before she left her cradle, to some boy who had hardly fallen out of his, and married her, as soon as nature permitted, to a husband she had perhaps never seen, till he lifted her veil and led her away to a prison called home, a locked stable where she would be kept for breeding purposes and supplemented with other mates if she failed of her one great duty. They had thought it beautiful not so long ago for a fourteen-year-old child to have a child. Now, in the more decent states, it was called abduction or seduction to marry a girl, even with her parents' consent before she was sixteen. The husband could be sent to prison for the crime. Today, all the American women were voters. Millions of them were independent money-makers, and this seemed right to Mem, though preachers had shrieked that it meant the end of all morality. But morality is as indestructible as any other human instinct. The obscene old ideal that reproduction was the prime obligation of womanhood revolted Mem. What was the use of devoting one's life merely to passing life along to another generation? The fish, the insects, the beasts of the field did that much and only achieved progressless procession round and round the same old ring of instincts. Each generation handed over like a slave to unborn masters, themselves the slaves of the unborn. Who profited? To the women of Mem's time and mind, the old-fashioned woman was neither wise nor good, but a feudal female who deserved the slavery she accepted. For each generation to climb as high as it could was surely its first duty. Love would take care that successors should be born, and science would protect the young better than all the old mother-murdering systems. It was only in the last few years that science, freed from religious meddling, had checked the death rate that had slaughtered infants by the billion under priestly rule, and now birth control was the crying need. Marriage had never been the whole duty of man, and Mem was sure that never again would it be the whole duty of woman. A man had always heretofore felt that he should assure his own career before he took on the fetters of matrimony, and a woman would always hereafter feel the same thing. Terrible euphemisms for slavishness, miscalled meekness, submissiveness, modesty, piety, propriety, had been held as lashes over women for ages. Now whipping was out of style. A girl could go where she pleased and go alone. She could take care of herself better than men had ever taken care of her. There had always been something wrong about letting the wolves elect themselves as guardians of the ewe lambs. Her mother was with Mem, and that satisfied some people. It made her father happier. But the real reason for her mother's presence was that Mem wanted the poor old soul to get a little fun out of life before it was too late. She and her mother were merely young girl and old girl in a globe-trotting adventure. Mem was still awake or was wakened from a half-sleep when the racket of the wheels upon the rails sounded a deeper note. She guessed that the train must be crossing a bridge. She rose and leaned softly across the bed where her mother dreamed of the old home and the exhausting demands of her children. Mem lifted the edge of the curtain aside a little and peered out. The train was in mid-air, passing through a channel of rattling girders. The vast water that swept beneath, moonlit and placid, was the Mississippi, going south in the night. It would soon flow past Calverly. She remembered that she had once thought of drowning herself in its flood, to hide her shame there and solve her problem. The equation of all the X's and Y's of her life 
had seemed to be zero. Now it was infinity. How wonderful it was that she had not yielded to despair. It gave her an idea for a picture. Nearly everything was taking the scenario form in her meditations nowadays. Wouldn't it make a great film to show a desperate girl flinging herself in a river to hide her shame and then to have it roll before her the life she might have lived if she had not drowned herself? Scenes of struggle and triumph, usefulness and helpfulness, joy and love could follow and then fade out in the drifting body of the dead girl who had lost her chance. Mem saw herself in the role, and she shivered with the delight of her inspiration. Then she sighed. The censors would never permit the film. Girls must not go wrong or commit suicide on the screen. They could go on sinning and slaying in real life, as they had always done in drama, but the screen was in slavery now, and must remember its cell. But she at least was eastward bound toward the morning that was marching toward her beyond the somber hills of slumber. She breathed deep of the aural promise in the very stars whose light was dying in the greater light. Even while they lay shuddering, beads of quicksilver scattered along the sky. End of chapter 57 Recording by Deanna Beauvais